Hey, what's going on, you filthy animals? Welcome back to another episode of the Wall Street Junkie Podcast. This episode, I brought on Devin Moss. Devin Moss went to Cornell for his undergrad, and then for his master's, he finished up at UC San Diego, where he played a year of basketball for UC San Diego D1. So honestly, just a great upstanding guy, a lot of interesting perspectives, and in this conversation, look, we talk about geopolitics and its effect on the market and also cybersecurity and what he's doing in that space as a writer. So a lot of interesting topics to keep in mind. And, you know, from a geopolitical perspective, I don't cover too much of geopolitics on this podcast because it's just not a space I'm super well versed on um, to the extent that I can use it to drive an asset allocation. It's just not really my cup of tea, although it certainly is a value. I'm not um, talking down about geopolitics at all. If you have a knack for it, certainly having an opinion, and it, it will help you better implement an asset allocation, there, undoubtedly. And so for Devin, it, it's interesting to see his perspective on geopolitics and how he, you know, in large part, uses that to kind of drive some of his allocation decisions, which I couldn't agree with more. If you have a knack for that, I think geopolitics is super important. Um, especially, you know, when it comes to hedging the short-term volatility of your portfolio, I think having a, um, an opinion or a view or direction of where geopolitics is heading is certainly valuable. So guys, you know, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation, but with, before I start it, let me just talk a little bit about the merch that I've been putting out. You know, I've been running this brand, the podcast, and then more recently, the social media personality that is me and Chad. We're all of one. I am Josh by day, Chad by night. And I put out a couple of merch items. I have a Wall Street Junkie hat, and I have a Chad tank top. It's uh, Chad coin is the new Bitcoin. Um, because believe it or not, I did a I did a funny bit on how you can find cryptocurrencies in 2021 by using your first name and uh, first name initial and then <clears throat> your birth month. And my cryptocurrency I should have invested in using the system that I kind of just made as a troll ended up being Chad Coin. Now I thought it was a joke, right? I mean, I obviously I was like, well, there's no way Chad Coin exists. Well. I was wrong. Chad Coin exists. So there is um, a shirt that you guys should go uh, go purchase, pick up, and support the podcast. Support me. Um, Chad Coin is the new Bitcoin. Let me know if you have any other merch ideas. Look, guys, I really appreciate all this support. So without further ado, hope you guys enjoy this one. Absolutely. I'm happy to be on. Happy to be a part of the show. Yeah, man. It's been a while. What, uh, what have you been up to recently? Oh, man. Uh host of things i uh god i think man the last time i saw you was probably a high school graduation <laughs> man, like um, eight years ago <laughs> yeah yeah pretty crazy um you know i i went to sierra um coming out of high school yeah. for basketball um and you know i played there for two years and then i transferred uh to cornell and new york and um didn't end up playing out there for a trillion reasons but you know i did my bachelor's out there at a good little time and uh went to usc for grad school hated it wasn't playing basketball still really missed basketball so i uh i transferred my grad program to the university of san diego and i uh finished up 
my master's there um, oh. in international relations, like I told you, and finished my basketball career, and I've just uh, been working since. How how was that, you know, doing uh, grad school and being on the basketball team? Yeah, that, that was definitely interesting <laughs> because, um, you know, we were pretty good while I was there. Right. So, you know, we had we had a couple of non-conference tournaments, um, some pretty – some pretty long road trips. You know, we went to Mississippi. Um, we went to Vegas for about a week in the non-conference. We went to Memphis. So, you know, just with that travel, it was tough. I know when we went to the WCC tournament, we spent eight straight days in Vegas. Um, and it was just nonstop. You know, you have media stuff and, you know, shoot around games, blah, blah, blah. Right. So there's just no time for work um <laughs> were you do, so did you do two short. years on the team then um or how many years were you on the basketball team at uh, uc san diego uh so i did just one because essentially you know my eligibility had ran out i i used two years of eligibility at sierra okay um you know you have five years to play for essentially right. um and went to cornell didn't end up playing so essentially i kind of used a redshirt year there oh, um, okay yeah, which is kind of like that fifth year. So then I had a year of eligibility left. And when I had left Cornell, you know, I'd been playing um, and I'd gone to some open gyms and stuff. Um, right. You know, and so the coach at San Diego was like, hey, you know, I still have a spot for you if you want to come play. And I was like, you know what, definitely at the time I was at you um, still at Cornell. Um, and I just decided, you know, I had a scholarship to USC. Yeah, I was like, you know, I haven't played in a little bit. I think I'm just going to do school. Yeah. You know, wrong decision. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, thankfully after a semester, I had gone down to watch one of their games in San Diego and he, his invite was still out there. So he, he had me out and, you know, I was grateful. Got to play a year. Um, you know, we, we were a good team. We made the NIT, which was awesome. Um, really cool experience being able to, to play in that tournament. Um, got to play at the University of Memphis for that game. Um, and, you know, for those who don't know, like they play in the Memphis Grizzlies arena, like the NBA arena. Oh, that's rad. <laughs> yeah. So it's like 20,000 people. Um, it's, it, it was pretty sweet. It was pretty sweet. <laughs> how, how common is that, though? Like to be a grad student and, and being on a big team like that? I can't imagine it's super common, right? Yeah, I think it's become more common lately because the NCAA has relaxed rules for grad transferring. Okay. Um, and so a lot of people, you know, they'll basically graduate in three years. And yeah. then for their senior year, they'll try to grad transfer and they'll start a grad program. Right. It's definitely not super common, though. I think, you know, there's probably in the West Coast Conference, you know, just a handful of grad grad basketball players. I right. I would say like maybe five. Um, I think there was only two at San Diego while I was there. So wow. it's becoming more common, but it isn't, you know, necessarily um, something that everybody does. And, you know, it's tough. It definitely is tough. Right. Missing class, you know, grad level class is different, especially, you know, with the seminars and um, missing that type of information can be difficult. But I think it was super rewarding and I had a great time. I, you know, got my work done like a grad student, but in a way, I still had fun, you know. Right, like absolutely. Grad, which was really cool. So did you end up trying to go for the draft and go pro, or did you just decide you wanted to work, you know, in corporate America or you wanted to, you know, get a normal yeah, job? Yeah, um, so for me, like, that wasn't really a possibility. Like, I just wasn't at that level. Okay. Um, I probably could have gone and played in Europe at a, you know, a somewhat low level. and Gotcha. Um, got to travel, make a little bit of money. Um 
but you know, it was basically the time for me to hang it up. Um, yep. I kind of lived vicariously through my best friend who was my teammate at Sierra and at San Diego. Um, his name's Isaiah Pinheiro. He actually went to Placer High um, up in Auburn. And, you know, he plays he plays pro now, not in the NBA, but he was um, signed to the Kings for a little bit. Um, now he plays in Europe. And okay. so I kind of – I get my, uh, my hoops experience through him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so what year did you finish your, your Masters? Was it this last year in 2020 or was it 2019? Yeah, 2020 I just finished, which was – um, an awesome time to graduate, um, you know, right into the midst of uh, all the instability. Right. But, you know, I've kind of been able to make it work, um, thankfully, um, you know, doing a couple different projects. Um, I've had two different jobs. So, you know, it's, it's been good. It's been good. Ooh, so what do you do now currently? So currently, um, a little bit of a jack of all trades, but yeah. I'm a legal analyst at, at a law firm based in Northern California. Okay. Um it's truly a legal consortium. So it's called NorCal Fire Lawyers. And we handle the cases against PG&E for most of the big fires that people know. So the Camp Fire, um, the North Bay Fires. Yeah. Um, And so I work for one firm um, within the consortium. So I'm a legal analyst there. And then um, I freelance doing um, some marketing and writing roles. So um, I write for US Sports Betting Report, talking about sports betting. Um, I work for a cybersecurity company called Sidechain, which is really cool. Um, and then, you know, just uh, starting my own little project on the side, um, which is an ed tech platform. But I can't reveal any more than that right now. <laughs> I get that. I get. So yeah. where, you know, where do you hope most of your attention eventually gravitates towards your own project? Yeah. So either my own project or I'm actually, I'm somewhat in the process of transitioning careers. The reason I took the role at the law firm is because um, I hadn't had um, a lot of government slash, you know, legal experience and just the way things shook out with the pandemic, I wasn't able to go straight into a career, um, you know, that my master's was for my master's being in international relations. Um, So I think in terms of like, the the regular nine to five um i'm transitioning my career now i'm actually in the midst of job hunting looking at roles in dc government roles but ultimately i think uh, my goal is to you know kind of do as you're doing be my own boss and uh make it big with my ed tech platform there there's power in that man it's uh absolutely i love it <laughs> absolutely i've uh i've loved uh following so far what you've been doing with the podcast and um, man, you got great energy in your videos and, you know, it's infectious. Well, it's one of those things, man. I think, um, what I, what I've noticed is authenticity is like the number one thing, um, just with anything. And I know mm-hmm. it's people say that a lot, but there's so many people out there that like just aren't authentic. So that's why you, you, you won't make it unless you're authentic and being your own self. So, you know, I'm just this crazy son of a bitch sometimes, but you know, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, and it's Chad, man. It's you know that was that just came out of nowhere, man. People kept calling me that in college and things of that nature, and you know it kind of stuck with me. So that's kind of my alter ego. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, I remember in high school you were always a good sport. You were always a good sport. I yeah. think uh, back in the day, I think God, who was the English teacher we had? And uh, you know, I just remember, you know, sometimes you'd be the brunt of jokes just because uh, you know. You, you were you were just you always took things well you're a good sport about it like i said you so gotta be just yeah and now look at you you're flipping it all around and you're doing great for yourself so it's awesome yeah yeah i'm hanging in there 
Yeah. yeah so, you know, the freelance thing, just talk to me a little bit more about that, like the cybersecurity role. I'm kind of curious about yeah, you know, so more the, detail on that. Absolutely. So the company that I, um, I'm working with is called Sidechain um, Cybersecurity. Okay. And so they specialize in data security. Um, and it's something that kind of fell into my lap, um, you know. During the pandemic, I was looking for some side work and, right. you know, I, I was looking on Fiverr and Upwork and I stumbled upon this company called Pangea. Um, okay. And what Pangea is, is it's essentially Fiverr or Upwork, but for college students and recent grads. Um, so it's a really cool platform that just came out of Y Combinator. Um, they're doing really well for themselves. So they were doing this inaugural cohort of... Um, you know, talented students and recent grads, essentially. Right. So I was like, what the hell? I'll apply to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I got in and they have been hooking people up with these really cool side gigs with companies out of Y Combinator, um, you know, out of really cool startup accelerators. And so I got connected with the cybersecurity firm, which is something I've always been interested in. And, you know, Sidechain, they do a lot of work with Google. Okay. Um, they actually have co-wrote, you know, I think four or five white papers with Google recently. Um, so I do a lot of marketing and writing work with them, um, doing a lot of blog writing and some um, cybersecurity policy analysis, which has been really cool um, and really interesting, really interesting. Now, is it a startup that you work for? I would say it's 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 a little further along than a startup, but it's okay. not a, a, a full fledged, you know, enterprise Um it's uh, it's about six people right now. Um, you know they have they have good revenue at the moment, and right. you know they've worked with some some major clients. You know they've worked with Adobe and um, IBM, so definitely a uh, a little further along than a startup. But okay. you know, like I said, not really full fledged. Now, are they um, backed by VC like venture capital, or how does that work for them? Yeah, so I believe that they are VC backed. Uh, yeah. I don't know the particulars, uh, sure. actually. So that's a, that's a good question for me to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just kind of curious. So okay, see, I like that yeah. space though. What um, do you like the flow of working for something much smaller, more of a flatter organization than a big corporate company? You know, I I actually don't. Um, okay. And that's because I think I've had so much exposure to it in my early career. Right. Um, and so, you know, I should rephrase that. Not that I don't, but I think I'm, I would like to have more of experience in a larger company again. Fair I briefly worked while I was at USC for Fox Sports. Um, okay. You know, big conglomerate. And, you know, that was right. fun. Um, but it, it was very short lived. So I think um, it's something where I, I, I would like to kind of, dive more into that that larger that larger um larger company but you know it's been really cool because you get to do a lot of hands-on work um and some of the writing i do i get to write some really cool stories um so you know i i wrote this article about this lady who she has her own shopify store okay and her shopify store in uh november 2020 right around black friday um, it got hacked and she got some money stolen from her. Okay. So, you know, she was already a little concerned about it. And then uh, right around the turn of the new year, she went on Google. She was looking up, you know, the keywords that she advertises under yeah. her AdWords. And she noticed that there was a store under the AdWords that she uses that 
was basically the exact same name as her store. And she thought, huh, that's weird. It ranks above me. It's almost the same name. So oh, she clicked yeah. on the link and she looked at the store and the store is an exact carbon copy of her store in oh. terms of layout, in terms of inventory. No and so way. what had happened, yeah, what had happened was these hackers had duplicated her store right? and duplicated her inventory. Yeah, They ranked above her on Google. And so all of her customers and people who searched her through oh Google. Oh my God, no way. Yeah, they're going to this site. And <laughs> incredibly, you know, they, everything seems normal as they're going to their site. The, you know, they pick what they want. They put it in their cart. They and were they actually out. getting product or, or were they getting scammed? See, this is what happens. Yeah, okay. they go to check out. And yeah. right as they go to check out, you know, it says they put their credit card information in. They hit submit. And then yeah. it says there was an error. And it just reroutes them back to the site. And they steal all those people's credit card information. No way. And all her sales got drained. Now yeah. is is she back to normal now, or how how do you how do you remedy something like that? You know, it's pretty incredible, just because you know the way the world has moved so quickly in the digital space. Right. There's not a lot of legislation about these things, and so you know what really were options was, hey, you know, send a cease and desist letter, which we did. Right. Um, of course, that didn't do anything because it's not. not enough of a threat. Um, you can report it through this endless black hole that Google has to report, you know, bad actors that you right. never hear back from. Um, or your other option is to hack them back. <laughs> oh, I like that. Okay. <laughs> right. You like that because it's, it's interesting. And I totally agree, except for the fact that if you're, you know, the business owner, that's a pretty large gamble to take, right? Sure. Like using your business to hack back. Um, you know, she had called Sidechain to kind of, represent her and help her through this process and really what we determined is all you can do is send that cease and desist letter kind of try to chase them down okay. try to um you know make your customers aware and then in the future be incredibly proactive about you know securing your data securing your storefront and so that's kind of the lesson of the article that i wrote you know is that hey this could happen to anyone. Hackers target small businesses much right. more than they target large enterprises. You know, it's a lot easier. People aren't well-versed in cybersecurity. Right. So, you know, it's something that's extremely common. And I think a lot of people read these stories and they're like, you know, hey, it's not gonna it happen could happen. It's yeah. not going to happen to me. But I'll tell you, this lady, she really wishes she had done more proactively in the beginning. So I got to ask, you know, you know, we're in this technical technological age, you know, technology is fantastic now is it you know, on the cybersecurity side is it that we don't have the technological advance to protect against things like that or just most people just like you said don't care about it or just don't think it'll happen to them right i think you know with the number of people and businesses there are in terms of the small enterprise um areas i think it's just people don't have the knowledge they don't yeah. have the understanding and they don't utilize the tools they have Okay. I think when you want to talk about, you know, major hacks to government systems and to large corporations, right. you know, they have the tools and the sure. firewalls in place. And right. it's almost just like a battle at that. Right. Um, so I think at that level, it's much more about just offensive versus defensive technology in a sense, like in a very basic way of putting it. Um, and, you know, just the level of skill that your IT has versus these hackers and how creative they are. 
But when it comes down to small businesses and people right. who run their own companies, I think you can protect yourself really well just taking you know, those initial steps to secure, whether it's your storefront or whatever you do, your passwords, you know, there's a lot of different things because there's so many small businesses that if you put up a decent firewall, I think hackers will say, hey, you know what, I can move on to the next. Right. It'll be a lot easier. So do you recommend like VPN services as well? Or what what are some easy tools that my listeners should should use? Absolutely. So I think, you know, personally, I use a VPN. I think it's just good practice um you know to secure everything that you're doing in terms of as a store um as a as a business i think having a partner in cybersecurity is invaluable whether or not it's it's a it's a company that has a small business offering where they will help you you know secure um your online business um, or any type of digital business that you have, right? Or you know, maybe it's not paid, but it's just a partnership that you know you can reach out. I think that's absolutely essential, and I think um, it's one of the first steps people should take when they start a new business at this point, because okay. it's just so common nowadays, and it can happen at any moment. And you know, if it, it, it seems like they target really well when stores are really up and coming, right? And you know kind of in those make or break points. And if you get a hack and you lose customer trust um, or, you know, your customers, they had they see a competitor that, right. that does something as well as you and, you know, they, they don't have that level of trustworthiness um, and your security, they'll move on. So um, I think having a cybersecurity partner is probably the number one recommendation I would make. Okay. You know, it's, you, you kind of alluded to this idea of lack of government regulation that I'm, I'm sure is, is probably correct. What 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 does exist right now from a regulation standpoint, if anything? I mean, it's it's incredibly pretty limited. And, you know, I I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in this space in terms of like what regulation exists. You know, we see that how much of a struggle Congress and the government is having with regulating big tech yes. and how they do it. And, 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 you know, how do you rein in these companies and what is antitrust about them? Because in a traditional sense, I think you can argue that, you know, maybe they aren't antitrust because they're not necessarily colluding within each other right. um, with each other. Excuse me. Sure. Um, so as far as hey, what's your take on that? What's your take? I mean, because we've never seen, I mean, these these big companies, right? We, we know they're huge, but they keep getting bigger and bigger. They keep crushing earnings every year, every quarter. I mean, what's your take on it? Is that good I mean, or from bad? From an investor standpoint, I love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. It's a beautiful thing. But I think, and I think this is kind of an area that I, I've studied previously just with my master's work is there's a balance that I think the U.S. government is really trying to to play because, yeah. you know, you want competitive balance, you want you innovation, and it's good to have small companies that can really make their way and start to compete. At the same time, I think we recognize that China is a major player and China is, you know, arguably leading the tech race. Yes. And, you know, we we want to stay in that. And so breaking up our big tech companies, I think mm. you can make a strong argument is um, mm. creates a disadvantage for the United States. Sure. You know, these companies have so much money poured into R&D um, right. and breaking that up 
you know, it, you, the argument could be that, hey, in the long run, this may work out better because you'll have more innovation when things aren't, you know, as conglomerated. But at the same time, you know, these major Chinese tech tech companies that are backed by the government. Right. Um, and they're, they're not going I mean, anywhere. I mean, they're, they're not going anywhere. No. Exactly. So it, it, it really is a case of economics versus foreign policy and economics, I guess. Uh, right. you know, domestic economics and globalization. It's it's a really tough it's a really tough balance to play, I think. And so I mean Congress has their work cut out for them, I'll be honest. What is do you know if Biden's doing anything doing anything about it? Has he made anything, you know, official? Is he trying to put anything on his platform in regards to cybersecurity? You know, it's interesting. When Biden was elected um, on the White House website in their call for um, applicants for different different positions, you know, in the transition of administration. Right. There was actually hidden in the website some code um, that, you know, essentially, you know, I'm no uh, I'm no uh, coder, no computer scientist. But, you know, people that have expertise in that field could kind of decipher. And, you know, it was a major call. Um, for experts in computer science and in um, uh, IT and cybersecurity. And so I think it's something that the United States is really trying to ramp up. And I think it's something where truly we've been caught behind the eight ball. Um, and there's something right. to be said for leading the pack. And there's something to be said for chasing. And I think a lot of companies, excuse me, um, countries, authoritarian countries have tried to find ways to survive um, mm -hmm. and not just to survive, but I think in the case of, you know, China and Russia, but to thrive a little bit more. And one way to do that is to disrupt, you know, markets, you know, of course the world is so globalized. And so there's been a real strategic advantage in, you know, being able to, to hack, whether it's, you know, elections or, um, it is, you know, private companies there's right. there's a lot of advantage there and so the united states has been behind the eight ball but i from what i've read from what i see it seems like something that we are quickly trying to catch up on so are we trying to hack back is that i mean i've heard a little bit about the u.s trying to hack back is are we trying to go on the offensive now yeah i think you know that's a great question for a uh, a cia analyst um, <laughs> <laughs> i think they could tell you a little bit more in depth i think what, what what's likely priority number one is shoring up systems, you know, regardless of where people fall on the political spectrum. Right. I think um, I think we can all agree that election security uh, from foreign intervention is important. And so I think that that's an area that we've we've kind of come to recognize as a major sure. threat. You know, we want Americans making decisions on the future of the American government. Right. Um, and so I think that that's one thing that we're really trying to to shore up. And another thing that I think is really important, considering what the future of war will be, you know, we have these right. conversations about the potential of war with China and yeah. wars aren't going to look like, you know, World War One, World War Two anymore. No, yeah, no more bodies on the ground like they used to be. It's not fought that absolutely. way. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a lot of cyber warfare. And yeah. so being prepared for that is extremely important. Um, and countries are doing this in different ways. You know, like France, interestingly enough, is doing a lot more in terms of 
um, physical security. So France is kind of ramping up their tank production, whereas Britain is doing a lot more, putting a lot more money into cybersecurity. And it's <laughs> it's interesting to see these strategies um, that countries are employing, given you know how digital everything is. So you're um, telling me so France is just ramping up their tank production? France is ramping up their tank production. What? I think France is trying to do a lot more. Given France's colonial empire in right. Africa and a lot, and especially in North Africa, yeah. and you know some of the issues of jihad and things going on there, mm -hmm. um, France has really had an active role in those regions. And I think France has struggled a little bit. And sure. so I think they're trying to project more power there. Um, but there has been some criticism in terms of, are they doing enough in terms of that cyber defense? Mm. Um, and I think, you know, it's really important. For example, like China, I don't know if people have heard, but they have what's called the Belt and Road Initiative. No, um, I don't know what that is. Yeah. And so what the Belt and Road Initiative is, is China is investing billions upon billions of dollars in countries all over the world, helping them create infrastructure. Okay. Um, you know, in a lot of uh, a, a lot of the more impoverished countries around the world. But, you know, in a throwback to the United States, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago, they're kind of debt trapping countries. So they're giving them terms mm. on this money that, that they're providing that they know is not realistic. And so when countries can't repay these loans, China yeah. is able to seize the assets. So, for example, no like China way. owns almost like 25 percent of the Brazilian electric grid. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty absurd. And so that is of course a security threat you and know, that's how china, china is trying to take over the world oh my god i didn't know that yeah i mean china is doing a lot of a lot of different things that some <laughs> are pretty innovative but are somewhat out of the you know imperialistic i guess you can call yeah, it the US playbook from a long time ago yeah it probably we, lacks you know, taste really it lacks taste but that is very interesting that is an out-of-the-box way to do things huh absolutely <laughs> absolutely so um it, it, it's really interesting um, how much, you know, Chinese influence there is in countries that you, you wouldn't really expect. China has put a lot of money into Africa um, yep. and a lot of different countries in Africa supporting, you know, building dams and things of that nature. Um, because I think the name of the game is, you know, like you said, on foot warfare in China or in the U.S. is yeah. almost impossible. Yeah. But. Oh, yeah. Proxy warfare sure. um, and, and disruption. You know, the U.S. tries to spread democracy for, you know, idealistic reasons and, of course, for economic reasons as well. And if China can disrupt democracies and growing, you know, growing economies and kind of turn them more authoritarian, that's a plus for China. You know, right. That gives them more opportunities for economic agreement. And you know, a little bit more acceptance on the global stage. And so I think that that's a big goal of China. And, you know, I, I hear this case for, you know, that U.S. should, should you know, adopt isolationism. What, what do you think about that? I mean, I worry that, you know, China is going to keep doing their thing. So do, do Americans, are Americans kind of backed up against the wall where we really don't have a choice? We kind of do have to continue spreading whatever we've been spreading. Or, or what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, coming from an international relations perspective, yeah. um, I think isolationism is just, it's its not a good idea. It's a pipe dream, yeah. The, the world is so globalized, and to, to isolate ourselves and kind of open up the world to, to, to new leadership, 
yeah. you know, that vacuum is going to be filled by China. And when China does that, I mean, they're going to set the world's rules and they're going to set what, you know, what the new status quo is and, you know, what right. is the norm. And if we don't have a say in that, it's going to become more and more difficult. Um, I think you, you can see like a lot of our partners in Europe, um, countries that we have um, strong you know, relations with, um, they are much more um, willing, you know, in the last maybe, let's say, eight years to um, to be a part of, of, of this globalized world. Um, right. And to be a part of, you know, global diplomacy. Right, because for a while they kind of took a back seat, I feel like, at least from a European perspective. Yeah, from a European perspective, definitely, especially when it comes to security. But, you know, they, if, if the United States is not there kind of leading, it's going to be China. And so mm. if, if you're not having a say, you know, if you're not having a say in your business, someone else is and someone else has the ears and the eyes of uh everyone else and kind of leads the charge. And so I think it, I think it's a dangerous precedent. I think it's a dangerous precedent. You know, with you being so well-versed in this world, do you, is your portfolio from an investment perspective, do you, do you like any cybersecurity companies or how do you invest that way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of the cybersecurity world, uh, I do, I do like investing in it. Um, you know, I, I've invested a bit in CrowdStrike. I like CrowdStrike. Um, I think Palo Alto Networks is always a good play in cybersecurity. Okay. But I think what really colors, um, you know, my investing strategy is kind of looking at things um, in a long-term perspective and kind of taking into account how, you know, the global um, geopolitics um, mm. will come into play in terms of the ability for companies to grow. And I think... You know, there's been a, a little bit of a hesitancy on my end to invest in Chinese companies because okay. you know, there is this 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 um, tug of war in a sense between the U.S. and China, um, and so much state intervention from the Chinese government that you know it does make me nervous. So you know, to be upfront and honest, like I haven't invested in any Chinese companies. Even Fair enough. There are really good opportunities. Um, so that's kind of how I approach a lot of my investing um, for, you know, for today's globalized companies. So, you know, with, you know, with all these geopolitical risks, you know, geopolitical, geopolitical risks definitely kind of lend itself to this like risk off behavior where people tend to shy away from emerging markets, you know, and move mm -hmm. more in a developed world. How do you, how do you view investing in emerging markets because they're so exposed to these geopolitical risks like you talked about yeah i think it's something where you absolutely have to do your due diligence i think you really need to have a thesis for why you love a company and what you think is um you know their their what, what's going to be their track record of success right. uh, because it's something that especially in emerging markets it's so difficult to predict you know in terms of national security i mean to yeah. be upfront and honest it's like that's really one of the biggest ones i think you know back in january a company that i i was reading a lot about that people were excited about it's like the amazon of africa um was jumia <laughs> oh um, really yeah yeah and so you know i was reading about it and jumia is founded in nigeria headquartered in germany and it's 
an online marketplace for several African countries. And I think it's a really interesting play. You know, it's really interesting to think about e-commerce in Africa yeah, and, yeah. and what that means. But I think, you know, you have to consider, you know, in northern Nigeria, you have a lot of issues with Boko Haram and um, mm. jihadist extremist groups. And, you know, some of the other countries that Jumia operates in, um, you know, I think they operate in Tunisia and Tanzania and Ghana, um, Cameroon and a few others. Right. Um, you know, those are things that you have to consider when, you know, we're going to talk about, excuse me, their quarterly earnings reports. And if there's instability in those Oof. countries, whether it's governmental, um, you know, or citizen based, uh, that's that's going to play, you know, a major hand in earnings. And so I think, you know, mm -hmm. not not to say that Jumia has these issues, but I just think it's a good example of a company um, that is in an emerging market. It's got an exciting um, an exciting thesis. Um, but, you know, you do have to consider geopolitical risk. Sure. You know, it's funny, I think because a lot of U.S. investors, you know, this home bias, and, you know, geopolitical events, you know, they affect the U.S. stock market, sure. But, like, it's from a EM perspective, it's way more volatile. Do you think people just tune out geopolitical risk? Because I just don't feel like a lot of people talk about it. Um, yeah, I think, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great point. I think in terms of, you know, U.S. investors, you know, all we've known for, you know, quite a while is stability. Right. Um, so I think in terms of U.S. companies, in terms of European companies, yeah. I think there's a strong comfortability there. And I think it makes sense. But I think if if people are trying to invest in emerging markets, um, that it's geopolitics is something definitely to be aware of because it, it's going to have a strong influence. And I think we've started to see that um, it's had more of an influence even on U.S. companies, sure. um, you know, with the relationship with China. And if, you know. This is a, a, a little bit different, you know, given the pandemic. But if we want to talk about um, a lot of companies that are relying on semiconductor chips and, mm. um, you know, a lot of those are manufactured and produced outside of the United States. Yeah. Um, so what do you, you think know? about that? Because I, I get a lot of people asking me about semiconductors because, you know, that sector's kind of gone to shit this year. And yeah. people kind of don't don't understand because they think there's this positive correlation of semiconductors in the crypto world. And, you know, the crypto world's been on a boom. So what do you Absolutely. think? You know, where do you see the prospects of that sector in the next year? Because, I mean, a lot of people are just they don't understand it because crypto has been on such a tear. Yeah, I think in terms of semiconductors, you know, I I'm a big fan of NVIDIA. Yep. Um, I think, you know, that's it's a it's a great company. And it's a great play. Um, in the near future. Um, but, you know, going back to that geopolitical risk, you know, there's, you've got Taiwan Semiconductor, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, I think a stock a lot of people have been interested in. And, you know, they do a lot of the manufacturing for these, um, you know, these, these chips. And <laughs> if you want to talk about Taiwan and you want to talk about the potential for a major war, right. I think it would center around it would center around the South China Sea and the U.S. coming to protect, um, you know, what is a democracy and a strong democracy in Taiwan. But, you know, China lays claim to Taiwan as, you know, they're, they have this one China policy as part of, you know, why China's bringing, trying to bring Hong Kong back into the fold. And, mm. you know, they've stated that Taiwan is a part of China and, <laughs> you know, they would consider going to war to bring Taiwan back into the fold. And so if that happens... 
there's a lot of technological innovation that comes out of Taiwan that I think would affect a lot of U.S. companies. Um, and so I think that's something that people don't really know about. Um, and, you know, hopefully that's something that doesn't ever happen. Right. And, you know, it's just out there on the horizon. But I think it's something to be aware of and just to monitor, you know, um, and investing. It's key to just always be aware of, you know, the positives, but the potential risks um, that a company has as you make your investment decisions. And so I think that's one thing if you're dealing with companies that are involved that utilize these chips, which is a lot of companies these days, it's something to be aware of. Yeah, those are great points. You know, I know you're really big into politics and I don't really talk about it, but I'm curious from just a political standpoint, what do you think, what do you think the opportunities are in 2021? Cause I know you're pretty, you track the politics pretty closely, What from an investment perspective, that is what, um, right. you know, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, what are you feeling? from a political I think, perspective. Yeah, I think it, it's going to be interesting to see. It looks like we are going to get an infrastructure bill passed. Um, okay. So it'll be interesting to see, to see what level of funding there is for that and, and you know, what that looks like. If it's going to be this, you know, this Green New Deal that's been discussed <laughs> right. and talking about, you know, absolutely just revamping the U.S. economy uh-huh. or, you know, will it be something that's a little bit more pared back and a little bit more traditional infrastructure? So I think, um, infrastructure stocks for me, you know, from a political perspective are, are, are a great mm, play. Okay. Um, they're, they're a great play. And so for me, you know, one company that, you know, I've, I've opened a position in that I really like is, um, BIPC Brookfield Infrastructure Corporation. Okay. Um, you know, they have a, they have a pretty strong dividend and they're very globalized in terms of what infrastructure that they have and that they own. What's that um, so ticker again? This, so I can look it up. Yeah. It's BIPC. BIPC. Here we go. Yeah. Okay. So kind of under the, under the, uh, a subsidiary of Brookfield Asset Management. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And so that's been a play that, you know, I've, I've enjoyed and, um, has, has done well for me recently. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of good opportunity there in terms of, especially for countries that are already developed, um, you know, Western democracies, this transition of infrastructure, I think, um, is a really interesting play because Mm. I mean, the United States is really behind in terms of their infrastructure and and the investment that we need. And you Um, think that pairs nicely with this housing shortage that we've seen that people keep talking to and talking about, do you think infrastructure is going to be in line with that? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a great parallel. I think it's a great parallel. We, we, we've had this big issue build up in our housing. Um, and obviously there's just simply not enough to go around. I mean, you know, there's the homelessness crises. Um, you know, I think California has done a lot of soul searching and a lot of struggling with, you know, the amount of homelessness there is. And, you know, we've had these home prices that are absolutely skyrocketing and it's because, you know, it's something that we, we maybe put off a little bit as a country and didn't address right. um, as the need arose. And I think it's, you know, kind of the same thing um, with our infrastructure. You know, um, during my master's program, I was lucky enough. Um, I took a class um, actually in Hawaii on disaster response and crisis management, Okay, um, which was really cool. You know, we got to work with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association a little bit, a um, little bit with the you know, the U S army engineering Corps. Nice. Um, so it was some, some really, really cool, um, sources and some really smart people. 
Um, and, you know, what we learned is from a disaster standpoint, I mean, the U.S. is really ill-equipped infrastructurally to, to handle, you know, major disaster. And, you know, we've seen with, you know, controversial word, but with climate change, controversial phrase, um, yep. the upped intensity of, of um, you know, climate disasters. And, you know, I think it's something that we, we definitely need to pay attention to. You know, disaster doesn't strike, you know, as often as, you know, um, a lot of the other issues that, that happen, you right. know, in terms of major, major disasters, you know, yeah. economic downturns, you know, probably just as much. But um, when a big one hits, I, you know, I hope we've kind of revamped our infrastructure um, and we've gotten prepared. From an energy perspective, you know, clean energy's done all right in general, but clean energy has just gotten thrashed. Now, a lot Absolutely. of people were like really, really bullish on it because Biden had, had talked about it and it was a center point, I thought, in his platform. But what, what has kind of happened to clean energy so far? Or what's your take on that? Yeah, for me, I think it's, you know, we, we, we talked about that Green New Deal and yeah. I think just the, the, the skepticism that I think that will get passed mm. um, and that will make it through Congress, I think is pretty strong. And so I think at the beginning, you know, there was this euphoria, Biden's elected, right. you know, there's a Democratic House, there's a Democratic Senate. And I think yeah, that's people good. thought, hey, we're going to be able to get this through and really, we're really going to be able to go green and revamp. And I think that um, people have found that it's, it's, it's not quite that easy. You know, it's not quite that simple to get these bills passed. And so I think there's been a realization that, um, you know, maybe that some of that euphoria was um, a little ahead of the curve. And um, so I think that that's part of the pullback. But I do think it's interesting, like you said, just the level of pullback that we've seen in the energy stocks, you know, those green energy yeah. stocks. It's I mean, it's been strong. Yeah. It ha so is that is that just a breakdown in the Democratic Party? Because they have the majority. I'm just is it they can't agree on a new deal within the party? Is that what that is or? You know, I think there's a couple of things that come into play. You know, the majority they have in Congress is so slim. Yes. Um, right. They got to have every Democratic senator. Everyone. Yeah. You know, in approval of any bill. Um, so you need yeah. Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who's <laughs> traditionally probably the most conservative of the Democrats to, right. to sign off. Um, um, and you know, winning him over is not necessarily the easiest battle. I mean, if you want to talk about, uh, I, th I think people have joked that, you know, Joe Manchin is kind of president-elect because he, you know, he he kind of holds a lot of the keys in terms of what gets through Congress and the legislation that gets passed. Um, so I think that that's one challenge that Democrats have ran into is, you know, their majority isn't that, that large. Right. Um, and also, you know, can't really dive into Senate rules and legislation here, but not everything can be passed with uh, a simple majority. You know, some sure. things require a larger majority. Um, and also, you know, there's the filibuster. So if the Republicans yep. don't show up in large enough numbers on voting, there's not much you can do. <laughs> oh, my gosh. God, it's just it's so frustrating. It's so disappointing. Do you, do you think it's going to get better? You know, do you think we're going to see this big push in clean energy? Are you bullish on it in the next three years of Biden's administration? Or are you just going to say, nah, maybe maybe next four years? Yeah, I think 
it's tough. It's tough. I see some headwinds that say, hey, you know, it'll go through um, and we'll get a little bit more on the clean energy front. For me, I think I, I'm a little bit of a skeptic and probably lean more towards, you know, maybe that next four years, um, yeah. depending how things shake out. Um, but I think, you know, from a personal standpoint, I think it's really important and I think it can really help um, propel our economy. Um, so it's something that right. I'm in favor of. But, you know, we'll see. We, we'll, we'll definitely see. I can understand concerns about, you know, stimulus spending um, that we've done and, you know, adding a $2 trillion infrastructure deal. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's not an insignificant amount of money. So no. just um, keep printing, man. That's all life. you need to do. Just keep printing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> keep printing. And uh, I think Bitcoin people might be happy is a little <laughs> bit of an inflation hedge. <laughs> do, you, do you have cryptos? Uh, so I have some small exposure. I okay. have some small exposure, and I've dabbled it. Good man. Dabbled in it a little bit more lately. Right. Um, but it's not something that I've really gone uh, full-fledged into. Yeah, I don't blame you. You know, the last kind of thing, and I know we talked about this offline, the uh, sports government, or sports governance, rather. You did your thesis right. on that for your master's. Can you kind of go over, mm-hmm. you know, kind of what you uncovered or kind of some of your interests in that space? Yeah, so I think, you know, having been a college basketball guy, um, I, I was very interested in how, how I could combine my interest in international relations with sports. And so sure. this was kind of an area that I came to because it's not something that people really think about a lot. But, you know, governments utilize sport as a tool for diplomacy. Of course, um, yeah. And, 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 and other manners. Um, and so... I, I did my thesis. It was called Bend It Like FIFA, um, <laughs> Transnational Regulation of State Action. And so what that means is um, the ability of international organizations, and in the case of my thesis, international sporting organizations, to influence federal government decision making. Um, and so, you know, kind of what I found is I focused in on FIFA, um, you know, the yeah. international global body for for football or for soccer in the United yep. States and how their statutes and how the influence that FIFA has can um, really sway decision making in terms of political interference um, because FIFA statutes state that there there shall be no um, governmental interference in the affairs um, of national football associations. So the United States Football Association should not have interference Right. from, you know, the U.S. government. And so that's something that FIFA has had strong influence in with a lot of countries. Um, however, you know, it seems to be a running theme, but not so much with China. FIFA has let a lot a lot more slip with China um, in terms of, you know, that federal interference. A lot of um, positions in the Chinese Football Association are um, kind of state-selected. State, um, um, and then, of course, as well, human rights issues. So um, one of the really interesting things kind of leading up to me writing my thesis was this case in Iran um, and uh, the blue girl um, who was a woman um, in Iran who desperately wanted to attend professional football matches. Okay. Um, but. In Iran, it was illegal for women to attend professional football. Was it and really? So she, yeah, Holy it, it was illegal. What? It was illegal. Oh yeah, it's God. pretty incredible. 
Um, her name was Sahar Kodayari. Um, and so she disguised herself as a man. And this was somewhat of a, of a, I wouldn't say a common practice, but you know, there's a number of women who would do this and, um, she was found out. And so she went to trial and, you know, she was likely going to be imprisoned for a very, very long time. And so in an act of of rebellion, she self-immolated and she committed suicide by setting herself on fire. And so this created a huge global outcry. Oh my God. Yeah, pretty incredible. Um, But this created this huge global outcry. And, you know, a lot of people look to FIFA to say, what are you going to do about this? Like Iran is part of this global football world. Yeah. um, And you tout human rights as an organization. But you're going to let women can attend football matches. So what have they done Um, to move progress? Are, Are women allowed to in Iran or still not? Yeah. So, you know, FIFA put a lot of pressure on Iran and you know, they said, hey, by the time you have this next, uh, you know, I think it was probably my dates are going to get a little muddled, but I think maybe October of 2019, they said this next men's national qualifier you have, women need to be allowed. And so, um, you know, lo and behold, at that next match, they did allow, I think, maybe 10,000 women to attend. Um, they did kind of segregate them. So the women had to sit separately. But I think wow. it showed that power that FIFA has. Sure as an organization, um, because, you know, Iran is, you know, it's, it's, it's a national state, you know, and, um, they have what they believe are their, you know, their cultural practices that they, they believe is what's right. But, you know, that power that FIFA holds, um, in terms of a footballing body and the money that they hold, um, and the ability to qualify for these large tournaments that can give international prestige, whether it's, you know, the, um, the Asian championships or the world cup, um, that holds right. a lot of sway. And so you see that um, companies respond to that. Excuse me, countries respond to that. Or do, do you fear any risks or any fallback from FIFA becoming this huge global um, conglomerate that it is? Are there any risks do you see or anything you're worried about? You know, I think it's interesting because more recently we've had this, this creation of a European Super League um, mm. in Europe where the, I guess, I guess the largest 15 um, football clubs in Europe wanted to break away. And I should say 12 because three of them turned it down. But they wanted to break away and start their own league so that they could um, retain more of the money that they feel like that they drive. Right. Um, because they're the biggest names. And you know, a little bit less on the FIFA front, but there was a major outcry from UEFA, which is the uh, European, the Union of European Football Associations, um, saying that, you know, that's that's not within our statutes and you can't do this. And so, um, you know, there was a threat to boot all of these teams out of their domestic leagues um, and out of European leagues. And there was a threat that players on these teams will no longer be able to represent their country and no longer mm-hmm. be able to play in the World Cup. Um, and, you know, UEFA is a subsidiary of FIFA, but I think it shows that, you know, there's really strong power there that these large, you know, billion dollar teams that really bring in a lot of the audience for, for soccer, right. um, you know, they, they have people that they are beholden to. And sure. I think one of their complaints maybe is, is the level of influence and the level of strength that FIFA and UEFA sure. have over them. Um, and their inability to act freely. You know, a lot of those teams are more recently owned by um, 
American owners who I think come from this American um, system of, uh, you know, professional sports that is much more capitalist and a little less right. egalitarian. Um, and it's much more profit driven. And I think that mm. they've gone over there and realized that, you know, it's not it's not as simple as the American system to to to, to drive new revenue and to drive profit. Hmm. I didn't even really think about that, you know, the American system being as profit driven, but you're totally right. I totally see that. Why is the European system or how is it different? Like why why aren't they focused on profit as much? I'm just not super well versed on that. Yeah, I mean it's a good question. It's really just how these leagues started, how these football leagues began. Um you know, is much more, I guess, in a sense, you could say a, a socialist, yeah. you know, a socialist system in okay. terms of the sports, the sports. And so um, they've had this this longstanding practice, this kind of culture of, you know, it's the sport is for the fans. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of legislation and systems in place to support um, competitive balance um, and you know, there's there's an issue I think that we see in the in the in the US in terms of not maybe not it's it's hard to understand from a from an American fan perspective, but not being put first as a fan. Um right. you yeah. know, <laughs> it's interesting. A lot of fans in Europe complain about these like new astronomical prices um that these major clubs are putting out um for tickets for matches. Um and so, you know, I think people will have complained that tickets for matches now are, you know, 50, 70 euros, which, you know, they're like, that's so much money. But I think, you know, in the United States, you know, that probably equates to a 70, $90 ticket. I mean, I think people would think that's pretty normal. Yeah, it's pretty normal. I feel like, yeah. Game. Yeah. But, and, you know, in Europe, there's a much larger outcry because the system has not been set up like that. And mm. so it's, it's become a lot harder for fans to, 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 to go to every game, you know, as they do, um, you know, and have, as they have historically and cheer the team on. And, um, you know, they say football is about fans um, and, you know, these expenses or the profit that these um, sports organizations have tried to drive um, has really come at the detriment of the fan. And I think that that's something that U.S. fans don't necessarily have experience with and right. don't really know about. But that's a big right that's out there do you think it's gonna sh- do you think the european system is gonna gravitate more towards the u.s model or what do you what do you think you know it has but it's really interesting with this super league the level of outcry especially in england and a protest um that occurred you know it very quickly all six english teams pulled out of the super league and then you know a few of the spanish and italian teams did too the the german mm-hmm. and french teams invited you know they had turned it down um, from the get-go, but right. there was this large level of protest, and you know, for lack of a better way to put of it, put it, some heads rolled. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> no kidding. At Manchester United, the chief executive um, who was hired by the by the Glazer family, you know, it's a, an American family that owns Manchester United. I mean, he Ed Woodward, he immediately resigned, and you know, you've had some of these big resignations. And even, you know, Arsenal Football Club, they, they actually apologized. They outright apologized to their fans and acknowledged a mistake. Um, so I think it had been trending in that way towards more of a U.S. model, but there's been this strong backlash. I mean, 
even the prime minister, you know, Boris Johnson of right. England and the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, they came out and they had, um, you know, made, they made public statements outcrying against the Super League. Right. So th there's some strong opposition. And so I think maybe the pendulum might swing a little back, a little bit back mm. um, in terms of yeah. going back towards a little bit more of an egalitarian model. Wow. That was that was really interesting, man. I really like that. You know, as as we yeah, wrap up, you know, I'm kind of curious what what are any last minute things that you think people should be aware of from a geopolitical perspective that you see are kind of on the forefront of our markets right now. Yeah, I think, you know, we we spoke a lot about it, yep. but I think first and foremost on my mind would be the relationship with China. Yeah. Um, you know, and that can be um vis-a-vis -vis other countries like taiwan you know as we discussed or it can just be direct you yeah. know whether it's um you know people if they want to invest in alibaba and you know there's been some tension between the state government and jack ma who owns alibaba mm -hmm. and there's some worries there that you know the chinese government is going to you know come down hard and and regulate alibaba so that's one one thing that i think uh should definitely be paid attention to if anyone's doing any Chinese investing. And then I think just in general, anytime you're investing in, in, in companies that have large foreign presences or, you know, are based abroad, right. um, I think it's a good, it's a good practice to, to look into, um, you know, their security um, mm. and how that relates to the, the stability of companies. Nicely put. Well, Devin, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I hope we get to do this again because this was, these were great topics, kind of not my usual forte of what I talk about on here, but this is a good perspective that people, because I never talk about geopolitics, so I'm glad you kind of came on and, and gave more of an expert opinion than I ever could. So thank you again. Yeah, for man, that. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. And thank you for having me. I mean, you ask great questions for uh, not uh, not holding a geopolitical podcast. So yeah. you know, props to you. And uh, I appreciate being able to come on and kind of speak to the listeners and give a little bit about, you know, what I have some knowledge in. I've enjoyed listening, you know, to what other people, um, right. what their expertise is in. So, you know, just part, part of the Wall Street junkie system now. You know, you know, it's one of those the things, community. you know, I just get, I like to tread carefully in that space just because, you know, it's one of those things, you know, it, it's so volatile right now and people are so opinionated that, you know, if, if you slip up and you say one wrong thing, you're just outed. So I, I'm kind of like, you know, admittedly nervous, you know, when I, when those things come up, but I think you handled it beautifully. Yeah. Thank you. I, I mean, and, and understandably, I think it's a little safer to talk, you know, um, to talk international, <laughs> international politics. Right. Cause I think at this point there's a little bit more of a consensus, but I, yes. I understand the apprehension. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, again, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I'll, uh, make sure this gets up um, when we're, you know, when we're done after this, Go ahead and send me whatever kind of stuff you want me to put in the podcast show notes, um, whatever you okay. want me to promote, you know, for you, what have you. Give me a little blurb, whatever, and I'll put it in there and make sure you get the, the recognition you deserve because, you know, this was fantastic, Devin. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. Thanks again for having me on and, I, you know, look forward to speaking to you soon. Yes, sir. Well, you have a good one and we'll be in contact. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Devin. As always, thank you for the support. Stay hungry. Keep grinding. I'll catch you in the next one.
Peace.